Hello, and welcome to a Waypoint Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Our reading this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 6, and verses 22 to 26, and then verses 60 to 66. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Verse 60, many disciples desert Jesus. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why. I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for Doug. We just thank you for the words that you have given him to say to us today. And I pray, Father, as he brings them, that your Holy Spirit will be evident here in this place. I pray, Father, that as we as individuals will have receptive hearts, that we'll be open to what you have to say to us through what Doug is going to bring to us now. So we pray now that you'll go before in all that is said, and that is all that is done. Amen. Thank you. My name is Doug. You can call me Doug, if you like. Um, And I'm part of the team here. Um, I note uh, last week that Jim stood up and said, I'm one of the leaders here. Well, I'm definitely not. If you're new here today, ask somebody else what I do. Um, I'm the caretaker. I I clean up stuff. So, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) And you're a really messy lot, okay? (laughs) No, I'm not the cleaner. There's another great guy called Nigel who does things like that. But as I thought about today's sermon, I wanted to to get really, really quite simple and ask this question about why do you follow Jesus? Okay, so it's not anything deep theological. It's it's not much. I'm going to try and unpack a little bit about Jesus' journey as he went along and and say, you know, because he asked that very question of this vast crowd of people. 
So I guess there would be multiple reasons why people follow Jesus. And I don't know about your experience. I grew up in a, um, okay, let's give them labels. It was a very fundamentalist church. It was um, in a place 6,000 or 9,000, 14,000 miles away, whatever, you know, in the outback of Australia. Um, it was basically like, do you know the film Mad Max? You know that film, you know, hot rods and V8s and everything like that? It was Mad Max, but with hymns, okay? So, <laughs> quite serious, quite serious. Mad Max with hymns, serious. Um, so much so that all of the local lads um, had V8s, okay, so the whole, the cult of the V8. And um, one of them poured concrete into the rear tyre wells of his car so he wouldn't slide around the corners as much, give him more grip. Um, and some of the others, we went down the countryside, did donuts on the, the blacktop, you know, the McCartan, bitumen, whatever you call it, and one of their tyres peeled off. I was really, really lucky that that was just the youth group, okay? <laughs> no, serious, serious. And they didn't drink. Total teetotal. So there weren't any of the dangerous crashes that also happened. And as I drive back to that place now, dotted down that highway is little white wooden crosses where people have lost their lives. So sobering thoughts. So it was certainly a place that... Um, really enjoyed preaching the gospel, very faithful to the word, I must admit, very faithful to the word, but you had to stick by it. You know, the dresses grew longer and longer, and I wore a suit to church. Yeah, you can't believe it. I had hair, and when it reached my ears, it disappeared again. You know, it kept going like this. You know, but as the dresses grew longer and the Bibles got thicker, so did the hats, you know, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger until the ladies were outdoing each other with hats and the, the chaps were the way to their Bible. So part of the preaching obviously was about sin and about hell and redemption and these other things. And I was scared of hell. I really, really was. So much at the age of seven or eight, tender age, I prayed this prayer. I said, save me from hell, save me from hell. I said it three times. I don't know why. Because you don't know what to do, do you? You're a little wee un. You've, you've come up through Sunday school. You've heard all these dangerous things, and you just get scared. And so I, I raced out of my bedroom in the middle of the night, knocked on mum and dad's door, barged in, and something was obviously happening. I was going to tell them the great news. I've become a Christian. And they kicked me out. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Anyhow, they did. So that was me. I was scared of hell. <laughs> You know, so, but gradually I, I, I learned and I, I, you know, went through on through Sunday school and whatever church and so on. We learned the Bible, we did Bible exams and other things like that. So perhaps for you it wasn't that similar experience. Perhaps for you it was a deep and abiding sense of sin. You know, um, put up your hand if you don't think you've got a sense of sin. Yeah, most of us do, don't we? You know, because people born into this world, we have one fundamental thing that just we understand right out of the cradle that something is wrong, isn't it? Something is wrong in this world. You know, it's it's not perfect. Why isn't it? Why do we have that sense of injustice? You know, you hear people say, "Oh, this world is so hard." Well, yeah, I think compared to what? How do you compare it with anything? But we have that sense of sin. And certainly the requirements of the law, whatever law you live under. I've lived in different countries and the law here is, is pretty aligned to the law of the, of the Bible. You know, this is good, this is bad. And we all break that. If you've never sped on the motorway, <laughs> you can put up your hand. <laughs> and I guess none of us will, will we? 
How many times have you done that speeding course? Jim, I won't look at you. <laughs> I've done it twice. You know, the second time I knew the answers to the questions. <laughs> Praise God, you know. <laughs> but the arguments that come from the audience, and they're ex-policemen, wonderful guys who do that. You know, one's the soft policeman, one's the hard policeman. And the, and the, and the, and the soft one said, you know, and somebody was querying, said, I only did 34 and a 30 mile per hour speed limit, you know. And the other one said, yes, but you broke the law. And that was the point, isn't it? So perhaps you've got a deep sense of that conviction of sin. Perhaps the excellency of the, the preaching that's come from the pulpit has convinced you that, yeah, you've got a problem and you need to put this right with God or, or the judge or whoever. Perhaps you just like Jesus. He was a good person, wasn't he? Perhaps you've been through RE here in the UK. In Australia, they no longer have RE, basically. It's completely wiped, very secular curriculum. 30, 40 years ago, nothing was taught to us about religion. Absolutely zero. You know, the impressions of the teachers, whether they're atheist or, or religious, was all that we got about morals. So perhaps you like Jesus' teaching. Perhaps that's why you've come. Perhaps you don't know anything else. Perhaps you were born a Christian. And there is this difference. I'm so glad that they sang that, that hymn at the end. We used to sing a hymn. We used to have a thing called Come to Jesus times. I went through, you know, um, great tents with, you know, evangelists up the front and preaching the word. And we'd sing this particular hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plead. Does anybody know that? But that thy blood was shed for me and that I, you know, I come, I come. And it was all about singing this verse on and on and on until eventually somebody did come down the front and you could pray for them. Hallelujah. You know, I only ever once saw an evangelist appealing for, you know, people to come to the front and nobody came. And boy, he was never invited back again. <laughs> you know, didn't do your job, mate. You didn't convince anybody of their sinfulness. Okay, so... It's only later on I realized that hymn was not meant for non-believers. It's also meant for believers, that we still come, you know. There is nothing. We don't become good people. You know, we are, still need the blood of Jesus. You know, or perhaps you just go along with the crowd. Perhaps you came because your parents brought you today. I'd love to hear one of the guys here say, my wife brought me here today. <laughs> Why not? I invited somebody during the week. I couldn't see him here today, but I said, come and get a bit of God. His, his joking reply was, well, my God is something else. But, you know, who is your God and why do people follow Jesus? So let's have a look at the story. So this particular story in the Gospels tell Jesus' story in different ways, don't they? You'll be really aware of that. There's the Markian type thing in the middle there, quite a short gospel. There's, you know, Matthew and Luke. There's a larger and then larger part in the story. Some of them are more chronological. Some of them are more about the Acts. In this particular one, we think that it was towards the end of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus was born in Palestine. He grew up. And um, the, the story of his life is recorded in these Gospels, the, the uh, Synoptic Gospels and John as well. Over three years, Jesus walked around the area we would call Palestine. Now, John was his cousin, had been born miraculously 
three years earlier, as well, sorry, 30 years earlier, perhaps six months before Jesus, John had been born. And John's ministry was largely down the bottom part of Israel, a place called Judea, around the Dead Sea. So he crossed the Jordan and was baptizing there. Jesus tended to stick up around Galilee, where it's a little being a little cooler during the, or a little warmer during the winter months, but cooler during the summer months. So has anybody been to Israel? Do you know that place? First time I went there, young Australian, 32 years ago, first aeroplane trip out of Australia, first time I'd had a passport, landed in Israel around um, January time, and it was freezing absolutely freezing. My first job was go to the department store and buy a jacket. So you need to understand there's different geography around Israel. And Jesus' ministry largely was towards the north. Jerusalem's towards the south. You know, Galilee and the whole area of Capernaum and all of those things are up towards the north. So much of the ministry also was around these two lakes, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus at this point had already done some miracles. Okay, he had a following of people who had heard of him. And they were coming out to him to say, this Jesus, you know, have you heard? Jesus is in town, bring Uncle Bob, he's got a gammy leg. And that's seriously why people were coming to Jesus. Because they had Uncle Bob who had the gammy leg. They had a bit of a cataract in their eye, they had whatever. And the multitudes flocked to him. And they came to Jesus for this very same reason. You know, I want to clear up some of the misconceptions about Jesus' ministry. And first of those is that Jesus wanted a big following. And it just ain't so. If you go and carefully read the Gospels, okay, there's, I've recorded four here and there's others as well. First off in Mark 1, 41, the leper. Jesus heals a leper and he tells him, do, go do the requirements of the law. In other words, show, you, show yourself to the priest, get ritually clean, wash yourself, the lavation as they call it, and then, you know, go, go back to your people because that would free him from quarantine. But he said, don't tell anybody, okay, first time. Another time, there's two blind men that Jesus healed. And he came to them and he said, you know, you, you know be made well. And they did, and he, he, he forbade them. He said, don't tell anybody how this has happened. Because the first thing they did was go back and tell everybody, I can now see, and it was Jesus who did it. As a result, Jesus couldn't do many more things because the people mobbed him. Another one in, in, in Matthew 16, you know, uh, Simon Peter, bless him, he made this declaration of faith. You know, you are the Christ, the chosen one of God. And then Jesus said to his disciples, don't tell anybody, keep it on the down low, keep it quiet. It's weird, isn't it? You know, if you were coming to convert the world, wouldn't you want to make a big splash and a big statement? Wouldn't you want to come with the PR team, you know, get the message, be on track as you, you know, every time you meet? I worked in business where before the meeting you have the pre-meeting where your little team gets together and you decide what you're going to say. And every time you shake someone's hand, you say it. You say the message, you stay on track. As a team, you focus. And then after the meeting, there's the after-meeting meeting where you rush up and you decide, you know, you tackle that person, you follow up with that one, you do this. Okay, so that's the way it goes. And then earlier in John, before his ministry even started, 
the brothers who didn't even believe in Jesus told him, he said, go public, go big time, mate. If you really want to do this, go out there and tell the world. And Jesus said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to the festival. Okay, there's some other type of myths and, and things around as well. One of them is that the Romans were the bad guys. So don't we love this? Don't we love diametrically opposed things? We love to find the baddie in every story. We love to find the evil one, the person who's white and good and the person who's bad. And it's easy for us to assign blame. Well, the Romans weren't necessarily the bad ones either. Um, many came to believe and follow Jesus. At least two centurions are mentioned in the Gospels, aren't they? You know, one bringing is saying, don't come, my daughter needs healing. Is a daughter or son? I've forgotten, sorry. But, you know, and, but don't come, Jesus. And, and Jesus said, this is remarkable. I haven't found that faith in Israel. This is a Roman. So, and as the Maccabees had taught the Romans, they had become essentially the rulers of this province of Palestine. Around the area of 6, 6 BC, um, Octavian, I think, had conquered, removed the Jewish kings, and it had become really a Roman province. So um, they understood well how to govern, and one of the things, as we'll hear later on, is that if an insurrection arose, you know, chop off the head and the body will die. The disciples didn't necessarily know what was going on, did they? You remember some of the things they did. They, they asked the Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Or in your kingdom, can we sit on your left and right? And he said, can you bear the cross that I'm going to bear? And they said, yes, 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 yes. Well, you will then, <laughs> you know. You know, so being a Christian, you know, isn't about being good. It's about being dead, isn't it? You follow Jesus, it's about being dead. So the whole picture is messy. Jesus didn't do the things that we would have expected him to do when he came. You know, they were expecting a king, a ruler, somebody to restore the ministry, the kingship of David, of Solomon. And there's another final misconception that we're going to use, which is the one about parables were meant to explain things. I don't know if you know, but if half of you at least perhaps gone to Sunday school, you've been taught the parables, perhaps you had a, a children's Bible at home that you had read on your mother's knee or your father's knee. And, you know, the parables are Jesus' way of telling an easy story to explain something in the Gospels. Well, yes, but it won't necessarily so. So way back in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, and this is the passage in the Old Testament, where Isaiah says, Woe to me, for I'm a sinful person. You know, how can I proclaim? And the angel comes, takes a coal, puts it on his lips, and he said, You've been made clean. And Jesus said, referred back to this, and the, the passage is, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of these people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And as Jesus tells the parable of the sower, he, he, he says, you know, a farmer went out to sow, threw some seeds, and reminds me of throwing seeds around here, the wildflower garden on the side and some others. And as you throw the seeds, some goes on the path, doesn't it? Basically, the people hear it and just say, no, switch off, I'm not going to listen. Jesus explains that the enemy comes and takes it away. And then some goes onto the rocks, okay, so rocks, 
but the soil isn't deep and it springs up suddenly and then dies when the sun arises. Some goes in amongst the thorns and the thorns grow up and twist up and constrain the stuff and it dies. And then some goes on to the good soil. So today, remember those. Remember the rocks, remember the thorns, remember the soil. And Jesus goes on because the, the disciples take him aside and say, what do you mean by that? It's easy in hindsight, isn't it? We live in the 20th century. We got the benefit of internet. Mine died during the week as I was preparing the sermon. They're always furiously tapping away, using phones and everything else. But it's easy in hindsight to say, oh, the sower, of course it's about the word. Because we've read the Bible and it says it's about the word. But they didn't understand it. And so what he said, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has, well, more will be given and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they will have, be taken from them. And that's something that I think you should, I want you to discuss in your life groups this week. I've got some thorny questions to ask you. I'm going to send them to Fran later on. But one of those questions is, why did Jesus hide his message? Why did he preach in parables? Why did he tell people these stories that allegedly should have made things simpler, but actually were aimed at making things poorer. So Jesus doesn't always do what we imagine he should. So perhaps you're a rock today, and uh, perhaps not. Perhaps you live amongst that small amount of soil. And this was certainly the case of the people that came to Jesus. So rewind a little bit, comes to this point in his ministry, two and a half years into it. He's been down south. He's been baptized by John. He's been to the temple. He's gone up north. He's visited the coast. He's back around Capernaum. And you can still see these, the, the footings of the synagogue where he perhaps preached. And then he crosses over to the other side and he preaches to a large crowd, goes on to a mound there, a hill, preaches to a crowd. And then at the end of the day, there's not enough food. And so he challenges the the disciples, what are we going to do? Disciples say, meh, don't know, you know, even if we had lots of money, there's no takeout. Domino's don't deliver. There's no Uber Eats, you know. I, um, this, this is a real problem. What do we do? Row the boat, catch some fish. So Jesus breaks up these, these loaves and, and fishes and feeds the 5,000. And the people are astonished. They really are astonished. They sit back and they say, this is amazing. This guy is a miracle worker. He does things. I saw Uncle Bob got healed. I saw this and that. Wow, I want to hear more of this guy. So the disciples then took the single boat that was there and crossed back. During the night, the storm arose. Jesus walks on the water to them. And they arrive where they're going, back on the side near Tiberias on the left-hand side. And... When the people see that Jesus is gone, but he didn't go with the disciples, they get agitated and they say, what? I'm not going to walk all the way around the lake. Where's the guy gone? So some fishermen from Tiberias were over there. They rushed down, hired the boats, and they all end up over near Capernaum again. And then they rock up to Jesus. I don't know what Jesus is doing. It was never a large place, Capernaum. You know, it was only a few thousand people maximum, perhaps. And they rush up to Jesus, and this great horde of people up from the beaches, up from the boats. And they say, yo, Jesus, when did you get here? 
Now, I don't think that they were really worried about Jesus' schedule. Do you? I don't really think that they were keyed in with, you know, you're the son of God and everything else. And in fact, Jesus calls them out at this point and he says directly to them, you didn't come over here because you saw the signs, because, wow, what a sign, eh? Walking on the water, you know, feeding 5,000 people. You didn't come. You came because you got the food. And it really, really did offend them. We go now into a discourse, and the discourse starts on the shore, and then it goes on, and then it proceeds into the synagogue, and over a number of hours, Jesus said to them, essentially, eat me. Ha! You know, what a thing. He actually really, really winds them up, doesn't he? You read the passage and it says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You know, I am the bread of life. And, and bread means everything. Bread was almost currency in those days. The, the Arabic, I know, is close, the word for bread to life. And, you know, bread means everything. It means food, it means survival. And anyway, they say, you know, this is a hard teaching, Jesus. Why are you telling us this? But his intent seems to be saying, what's your motivation for following me? Why are you here? Because it wasn't about the signs. It wasn't because you want to follow me. It's because you got free food. And it's, um, God rewards persistence, doesn't he? he? He rewards depth. Let me tell you a story of, of depth and persistence. Um, I served in a church in London. I've never been a leader. Woohoo! I've always just been the garbage man, the, the caretaker, the, 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 <laughs> the whatever maker. And in this church particularly, um, I, I basically painted it. I, I slept underneath the pastor's desk because there's no bedroom for me. I slept up in the attics. I slept with the pigeons. I slept everywhere, about 20 different places all over that church, over a year and a half. And... One day, this particular person turned up and um, targeted, so it's a con man story, and came in and said that his, his uh, family in a foreign country, you know, he had arrived here expecting a job, the job had fizzled out, and I'm really, really sorry, could, you know, could we help him with just a little bit of money? And so we had a rule in that place, South London, it's, it can be quite violent. We've seen suicides right out the front of our church. We've seen people killed, you know, attacked, uh, criminality, they were dealing drugs through the front fence of our church, things like that. Great, great place for me. Every day there was something else. But, you know, he was so persuasive, this guy, sweet little person, really amazing. And his story, he showed us his certificates, you know, how he'd come to this oil company expecting work. And then, you know, so the pastor, the vicar, the whoever he was, big guy, <laughs> um, basically said, well, stay here. It's all right. We can give you a little bit of food. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm on a fast. I will not eat your food and do things like that. And over the course of a day and a half, because we thought he was on a suicide watch almost. He was so distraught. He rang up, you know, oh, my mother has died. My mother has died on the phone. The fact there was nobody on the end of the phone passed us completely. I followed him around London onto the underground. And at one point, as the doors were closing on the underground, he yelled back at me, why are you following me? Trying to embarrass me. I'm Australian. I don't embarrass very easily, okay? I do stupid things and I enjoy it. 
I didn't know you were meant to have British Reserve. I just, yeah, whatever, dude, here, oh, here we go. And I followed this guy and eventually came back and we found out he was a fraud and that he had a list of pastors who he had defrauded slowly and crossed them off, you know, of over 30 people. So, yeah, that was persistence, wasn't it? I almost feel like saying, give that guy a medal. <laughs> that guy, for a day and a half, has spun this story. God rewards persistence. So the depth of soil, the persistence, cling on there when all else fails because God will come through. So thorns, have you considered the cost? Too many of my family, I know, had considered the cost and said no, turned aside. Think about the story of John the Baptist. He was, uh, Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. John the Baptist story, birth was miraculous as well, wasn't it? Angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and said, you know, even as old as you are, dude, you are going to have family. And he said, woo you know, what? <laughs> you know, so, you know, the birth was miraculous and John was probably an only child. Imagine sending him out and he takes on his father's mantle, goes and preaches. And John was kind of weird, wasn't he? <laughs> he was a beardy weirdy, prophet of the old school, make your own clothes, eat insects and, and rob wild beehives. He was, uh, you know, whatever. But his, his baptism was different to those of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, yep, we will wash you, you're ritually clean. Doesn't care what's on your heart. John said, come and repent and be baptized for repentance. And hence Jesus came and was baptized and others came as well. But the ultimate thing was that John was killed, wasn't he? He preached against Herod's wife. He said, you've taken, divorced this one and taken another. And that actually resulted in a war at that time. In fact, John's word were, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So these are some of the things. Jesus said, consider the cost, take up your cross. You know, Jesus asked, who did you go to see? If you want to see people in finery, dressed up in suits, they're in palaces, don't go and see John. And so the thorns of a Christian life grow up, and I know in my own family, grown up, and have choked the word of God. Try as they like, you know, sometimes the business of life, you know, pat the husband, feed the baby, burp the dog, you know, this type of thing. And you just start bouncing off the walls, saying, what's happening next? Everything, everything rolls up. This week in Waypoint, we had a fire alarm. It was great fun. So I was in the middle of a, a lovely cup of Victorian um, lemon juice down here. Somebody said, Jim wants to see you. So I walk up to see Jim, leave my lemon juice there. And in the middle of discussing the, I don't know what was Jim. And then all of a sudden, hoot, 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 all the alarms go. So boom, barreling down the stairs. Grab the high-vis jacket, turn off the alarm, dash over there. You know, where's your Christianity? I don't know, but you know, you're on the move. And this is true, isn't it, for most of our lives? That basically life is so daily You'll go out there today and somebody will cut you off. <laughs> Just bless them in the name of the Lord. I love Trish and Malcolm. When I was over there on a team with Claire, you know, Trish told a story about driving down the wrong way on a one-way street. I hope she's okay with this story, me telling it. And she said a rude word. And then she said, no, peace 
to your brother, <laughs> you know, when she realized they were coming the wrong way. You know, um, she was on the wrong side of the road. But your mind might be like a browser. You know, there's 27 tabs open, um, six of them aren't responding, you know, and there's pop-ups everywhere. Where is that weird music coming from? So life is busy. It really is. You're worn out trying to live up to those Christian expectations, you know. Or do you hold your, your pain as your identity? Do you know of people like this, that their ability or disability or identity becomes their story, becomes who they are? And that hurts so much. There's a lovely book called The Singer, The Song and the Finale, 1975, Calvin Miller. And in The Singer, the troubadour comes, the singer, and he represents Christ. It's a lyrical retelling of the story of Jesus. And he comes, he's healed a little girl who's crippled and then can walk again. He comes across a miller whose hand has been crushed in the great stone that winds around. And as he talks to the miller, he said, do you want to be made whole? And the miller says, why do you curse me so? Can't you understand my pain? And again, the troubadour, the singer says, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to have a hand again? Of course I do, but it's not possible. Won't you join me in my misery? And too often it's that, isn't it? That those thorns grow up and they become the thing. Don't you see what I have to bear? My singleness, my, my predilection for gambling, my cursed this, my tongue, my whatever. I've been too bad. Jesus, you can't heal me. True, isn't it? So often that becomes us. And then the soil. You know, Jesus in his parable of the sower, he said, the soil falls on the good soil. And, um, you know, it becomes a harvest. You know, 30 and 60 and 90 fold. So Jesus asked them at the end of the passage in John, after he said to the people, Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. And everybody said, this is a really hard teaching, and many stopped following him. And he turns to the 12 disciples and asks them, do you also want to go away? And, you know, John the Baptist had been killed. There was a lot going on. They knew the religious authorities were after them. The Romans had a game plan. They were going to chop off the head and the body would die. And they were sitting there thinking, well, what have we gained from this? There's a lot of pain. We've followed Jesus all over the place. We've given up our boats, our, our ministries, our doctorship, our whatever. We've given up and followed Jesus. And Simon Peter, bless him, he always blurts out these things. And he said, where else would we go? And I don't know if that's your, you know, your heart's cry today. Where else would you go? You know, for all the philosophies that the world is full of, for all the things that you could follow, where else would you go? And then he makes this statement, you have the words of life. Who are you going to trust? You know, for me personally, it's because Jesus called me his friend. So later in John 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. 
Yeah. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you might go and bear fruit. Yeah, fruit that will last. And so whatever you say in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. And that's why I follow Jesus. You know, there's a lot about Christianity that's all about before the cross and then we get saved and come to the cross and then there's the end. And we so often consider it from the perspective of the, of the petitioner, the person coming. And it's not necessarily so. Because I want to ask the other question, how far did God come? You know, I don't know if you have um, wondered as I have this week as we've had the images of the um, James Webb telescope you know, projected onto our screens. What's some amazing ones? I've got one of them up here. So how far will God go? You know, when you think about the God that spun the universe into action, that drew apart the galaxies, that spoke, and light, you know, was pushed, that's not, uh, it's the edge of a great hole that, you know, the, the cosmic rays are pushing the dust clouds away. And some of those things, those promontories, are, are light years across. The astounding thing, the creation of the universe, but who made molecules and atoms, 26, 27. How many fundamental particles are we up to now? The God that thought DNA and created and spread it through the world, that called into being trees and flowers and man and woman and brought us forth, you know. How far will he go, you know? This is the thing that the same God who imagined all of these things will cause the seed to grow. And it caused the water to fall. And the, I, I learned a new uh, parable I didn't know before. It's called the parable of the hidden seed. And it talks about a man sowing a seed and the seed grows. And he doesn't know how it grows. I've never heard that parable before. I love it. It's a good new one. But then he harvests it at the end. So this tree will grow. And it caused a craftsman to come along. And a craftsman will cut down that wood, you know, and he'll fashion it into planks and build furniture and the edges on the stairwells that you're looking at and the platform under here. And yes, you know, the craftsman who fashioned this was me. So, <laughs> yeah, I took the oldest piece of wood that's been sitting in my, in my wood pile and my wood heap and basically, you know, screwed it together. I've got the pictures that can show you. And there's got spider holes in it where things live that I don't want to talk about. And it's green and moldy and that stuff I had to buy new. And basically, a craftsman will fashion a cross. And then God himself will come and be born of a woman, born under the law, live for 30 years, suffer and die and have all the temptations that we have. He will live and breathe and take on a job and responsibilities, struggle as we struggle, and willingly go to the cross and be put to death. So, yeah, we talk about how far we've come. How far did God come? Let's pray. Father, if we were to come before a great and holy God, who of us would stand? But only by the power of your resurrection, the blood of Jesus, we are made whole. 
Father, we've spoken these words to people's ears. Would you apply it to our hearts? For Christ's sake, amen.